Now, today we're concluding this series, Future Church. And over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through this passage, 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10, diving deep on who Peter says we are as the people of God. Um, and I think this is the hardest sermon of the series. It's the hardest one to prepare, and I've got a feeling it's going to be the hardest one to preach, and it may be the hardest one to hear. Um, so far, we've seen that the church is a spiritual house. It's a temple of God, and it's a spiritual priesthood. We're royal priests, the men and women of the church. But today, we're going to see that part of our identity means that we are a holy nation, a holy people. And I say it's the hardest one because the first two, the temple and priesthood, are abstract, theological, and metaphorical. You know, what is it to say that the church is a temple or a priest? It's trying to help us understand some spiritual reality, that God is with us, his presence is among us as his people, and that we're called as priests to offer service to him and to bring his presence to the world. But then you come to this thing, a holy nation, and where the first two are abstract and metaphorical, a holy nation is ethical and moral and verifiable. Are we holy? You know, I've grown up around church people, been around them my whole life, and there are a lot of words that I could use to describe them. Some of them I can say out loud, and some of them I can just pray to the Lord, you know. But holy's not, not the one I would go to first for most people. And yet, that's exactly who Peter says we are. You are a holy nation. What do you think he means? I mean, to call the church holy is certainly not to say the church is perfect or sinless. Scripture's clear about that, and our experience reminds us daily of our brokenness. And anybody who's ever been a part of any church knows that there are no perfect churches because they're all full of imperfect people. And one day, even the best church turns out to have people who are going to hurt you. Maybe by betrayal or accidentally. But still, Peter says we are a holy nation. And so this morning, I just want to think about that with you. I want you to think about it with me. And I really only want you to do two things. I want you to just sort of let it soak in. That despite what your conscience may tell you or despite what our enemy tries to say, you are holy, objectively, assuredly. You are holy. And I want to encourage you to do what the songs we've sang this morning offer to God in the form of prayers. Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I, I want to challenge you to consecrate yourself. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. But I want to challenge you to consecrate yourself to God, so that you would live a holy life that's pleasing to him. You see, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, the church is a holy nation. This phrase in Greek, it is ethnos hagion, a holy people. It means the church is a people group, defined not by shared ancestry or common language or shared beliefs or anything like that, but by a common character. The one thing that unites us is our holiness. 
And it's precisely this holiness that as we face the future together, an uncertain future, a changing future, it's this holiness that will determine our fruitfulness. How, how will we be in proclaiming the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light if we will not be holy? So this morning, I just want you to see that the people of the church are set apart to glorify God by living holy lives. And I want to show you why that's the case in three ways. And the first way is this. Holy lives glorify God by demonstrating his character to the world. Holy lives glorify God by demonstrating his character to the world. Now, the reason you and I would probably not use the word holy to describe most of the people we know is because it's pretty obvious when we examine their life and ours that we're not holy. But however you look at God, by whatever criteria you choose, you come to the same conclusion every time. God is holy. That is one of the most common descriptors of him in the Bible. The Holy One, or like what Mike read from Psalm 89, the Holy One of Israel. God is holy. When we speak of God's holiness, we usually think about his moral purity or his ethical perfection, that there's no sin in God. But biblically speaking, holiness is actually a broader category than that. It comes from a Hebrew word, kadosh, which literally means to cut or to separate. And it's used of people, places, and things that are separate and distinct from others. When used to describe God, one scholar said it means that he's the one who's separate overall, transcendent, high and lofty above it, exalted and different from everything that he's made. God's holiness is that thing about him that makes him terrifying and dreadful and unapproachable. For example, maybe you remember the story of when Moses is working as a shepherd for his father-in-law in the wilderness of Midian, and one day he sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And so he says to himself, I think I'll turn aside here and check out this bush that's on fire, but not being consumed. And as he came close, a voice spoke to him from the burning bush, and I want you to listen to what the voice said. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is what? Holy ground. Holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. That's the holiness of God. It's what the people of Israel experienced at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. We looked at that passage in detail last week. And after God speaks to Moses in Exodus 19, he tells him to go down the mountain and consecrate the people. Tells them to take a bath and change their clothes because they're about to meet with God. And after the people have consecrated themselves, set themselves apart for the Lord, God descends on top of Mount Sinai in a cloud. And the people at the foot of the mountain look up, and all they hear is thunder, the blast of a trumpet, and they see lightning flashes. And Moses tells us that the people trembled. It's what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter 6. Do you know this story? You could turn there and look at it with me if you want. Isaiah was a prophet serving the Lord in Jerusalem. 
And one day he went into the temple to pray. And this is how he describes his experience. He says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, those are, these are angels, stood above him, each having six wings. With two of his wings he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who was calling out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's the holiness of God. God's not holy. He's not holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And anyone who enters His presence uninvited and not in the way that He deems appropriate is doomed. Terrifying. Dreadful. The theologian R.C. Sproul, who wrote the book on holiness called The Holiness of God, says that when the authors of Scripture call God holy, they mean that He's transcendentally separate. He's so far above and beyond us that He seems altogether foreign to us. In fact, in that chapter on the holiness of God, R.C. Sproul brings up this term xenophobia, which is the fear of what is foreign to us, fear of strangers. And there's a sinful xenophobia that looks on people who are from a different place with unjustifiable fear. But there's a certain fear of something that's different and strange that is appropriate. And when we look at God, we don't see someone who's like us. We see someone who is altogether different. He doesn't fit into our neat boxes. His behavior can't be managed by us. He is God, and He's holy. And all we can do before Him is fall on our face. And so that's the holiness of God, this broad category of God's transcendence that He has exalted and lifted up above all things. And as a subset of God's holiness is His moral perfection and beauty. And Scripture is clear that God is morally perfect. Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 1.13 that He has purer eyes than to see evil. David says in Psalm 5, You're not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that God alone possesses immortality and lives in unapproachable light. James says that there's no variation or shadow due to change with God. God is holy, morally pure, perfect, and pure. There's nothing in him that resembles the sinfulness that you and I know so well. Everything that God does is right. He's set apart and perfect. Thomas Watson, the Puritan pastor and preacher, said that the holiness of God is the jewel set 
in his crown. It is that quality of his essence that we see and glorify because it is totally unlike anything else we've ever known. But Peter says we are a holy nation. Holiness is that which is different, set apart, and distinct from everything else. How can you and I, sinful people as we are, have any right to call ourselves holy? Well, according to Scripture, because God is holy, He calls His people to share in His holiness. That's Hebrews 12.10. And in fact, the author of Hebrews says that God disciplines us so that we would share in His holiness. That He has an active campaign underway in your life. So that the holiness that he has within himself as a metaphysical reality, it is who he is in his essence, would show up more and more in the reality of your life. That's why he told his people in Leviticus 11, I'm the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. It's why Peter quotes that verse in 1 Peter 1.16. So when God's people live holy lives, they reflect to the world God's holiness. So surely this was God's aim in saving a people for himself. That's why he says in Exodus 19, if you will commit to my covenant and keep my commands, you will be a holy nation. That if Israel would have obeyed God, they would have shown the whole world what God is like. His law is a perfect reflection of his character. Even the Ten Commandments, something as simple as that, reflects what God's desire is for us. And had Israel lived according to God's commands, they would have shown forth the holiness without which no one can see him. But when they went their own way and rebelled, God saved us in Christ and gave us the same mission, to be a holy nation who proclaims the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, and actually goes beyond that. You ever heard somebody say, do as I say, not as I do? Do you do what they say, or do you have a hard time with that? If a person's not living consistently with the message they preach, don't you have a hard time believing that they believe what they say? I do. And if we as God's people say we love and worship a holy God, and yet live lives that don't reflect His holiness, I I think we need to pause and think, reflect, and ask ourselves, do we really believe what we say we believe? If God is holy, shouldn't we be? I mean, when we neglect the holiness that God calls us to, we end up telling the whole world a lie. And so you and I are called to be a holy people, glorifying God by living holy lives and demonstrating His character to the world. There's another reason I think Peter calls us to be a holy people, a holy nation. And that's because our holy lives glorify God by putting the focus on Jesus and His grace that's at work in us. Okay, you, I've, I've, I hope I've persuaded you that God is holy. And if you came here today and you didn't know that, and this is all you get out of it, that God is holy, that's good enough. But you probably did know that God was holy. And you knew that you were not. You knew that the holiness of God is something to praise Him for, but it's something to be deeply concerned about for yourself. Since God is holy... And since his eyes are so pure that he can't look on evil, and since sinful people who come into his presence uninvited are usually obliterated, I mean, several times in Scripture he sends out fire from his presence to consume them, 
Uh, there's a danger for us in approaching the Holy One while we remain in sin. So because God is holy and just, the Scripture is clear that He'll one day deal with unholiness and unrighteousness, that He'll judge the world. Ezekiel saw that future judgment, and uh, Ezekiel 25 to, I think, chapter 31 It's just a series of oracles. They're visions that Ezekiel got over the course of his ministry about God's future judgment. And they begin with Judah. That's God's people. And then they expand to include all their neighbors. And in Ezekiel 28, he pronounces an oracle against the city-state of Sidon. And it's really interesting. Why don't you listen carefully to, to what this says? This is Ezekiel 28, 22. The Lord says, Behold, I'm against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst. And they shall know that I'm the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. See, it's great to stand in a distance and to see God's glory on the mountaintop and to be afraid and tremble at the sight. It's another thing to have that glory show up right in the midst of a wicked people. That's a dangerous request. God's holiness compels him to act against sin, and when he manifests his holiness, it pours out on sinful people in judgment. That's why the angel in the book of Revelation, who's given the task of pouring out the third bowl of God's wrath in Revelation chapter 16, says this, just are you O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they've shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. God's holy, God's just, and He acts towards human sinfulness with wrath. That's a really scary thought. All of us who are guilty of sin will one day give an account to that God, the God that Scripture calls a consuming fire, with eyes so pure that He can't look on sin. That doesn't describe us. I mean, you know, the Scriptures say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his or her own way. We all stand before a just and holy God condemned. It is what we deserve. And yet God loves us. And because of the great love which he has for us, he sent his own son, Jesus, to suffer in our place to suffer the punishment that our sin deserves. The Bible says that Jesus is God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. This is Jesus. Everything that God is in himself, including holiness, knowledge, truth, righteousness, justice, Jesus is. The author of the letter of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 1, 3, that he is the radiance of the glory of God 
and the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus as he's presented to us in the Gospels. Jesus is God. That's why the demon, of all people, in the synagogue of Capernaum, described in Mark chapter 1, was right when he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Jesus is holy. He lived a perfect, sinless, holy life, obeying God's law to a T. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. And in his life, he filled it up to the fullest, doing everything that God required and not turning aside from anything that he commanded. Because of his life, his perfect, sinless, holy life, he was able to offer himself as a sacrifice for sins. But get this, it wasn't just that he suffered in the place of sinners. He did that. That he suffered in our place. The righteous for the unrighteous. But it's also this. He offered to God his perfect life for you. So that what is credited to your account is the perfect righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, he doesn't see all your sinful behaviors. He doesn't see you, Mom, when you lost your temper on your kids this week. He doesn't see you, Dad, when you lost patience with your wife. He doesn't see you when you got short with an employee. What instead he sees is Christ's obedient life for you. And because of that, when the Scriptures say that Jesus came to bring forgiveness, they also see that he came to make us holy. It's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He says that the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God didn't look through time to see you and say, hey, you know what? They're going to make a bunch of mistakes and I'm going to send my son to forgive them of all their mistakes so they can get a fresh start and they can, then they can do better. And finally, knowing what they know and knowing that I love them so much, they'll always choose to do what's right. But God looked through time and saw you in your sin, and he said, I've got such a good plan for them. I'm going to send my son to suffer the penalty they deserve and to live the righteous life that they never can so that when they stand in my presence, they won't stand there covered in their own filth, but they'll stand there in the white robes of righteousness that my son earns. God's plan for you is that you would be holy and blameless before Him. And you know, when God plans something, He always finishes the task. You will be holy and blameless in His presence. Because you're in Christ, and by that, I mean, because you have trusted in Jesus, now everything that's true of Jesus is true of you. You're adopted into God's family. You are a child of God. Your future is secure with Christ in heaven. And you are now a new creation. And day by day, you're being conformed to his image. An image that Paul says in Ephesians 4.24 is true righteousness and holiness. And so day by day, moment by moment, bit by bit, you are becoming who God says you already are. You are holy in Christ. And when you stand before God complete, you will be holy. And thus, the church is truly a holy nation, both objectively, that God says we are holy and progressively, day by day, 
subjectively true, that we are becoming holy. That's why the New Testament says over and over the people of God that they are saints, holy ones. And that's what you are. So it should be obvious that if our holy lives reflect God's character back to the world, then our holy lives also serve the mission that God's given us. If we're called to proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light, we're not pointing to ourselves as proof. Instead, we're pointing to Jesus, that we're forgiven sinners saved by grace through faith. we got no room to boast that everything I am, I am because of Christ in me. That's all we preach and all we proclaim. Instead of trying to take the credit for all the things we think we've done, we point back to Him. It's all about Jesus and His grace at work within me. I think that's what Jesus means. And this is one of our favorite things to talk about around here. I hear people say it all the time. We're called to be a lighthouse. Called to be a lighthouse. Jesus says we're called to be a city on a hill and the light of the world. He says a city on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So when we live the holy lives that God's called us to live, we put the focus back on Jesus and his grace at work within us, and we glorify God by doing it. You know, I think the danger here is if we don't, live a holy life, if we don't allow Christ's life to take root in us, we end up telling the world a lie about Jesus. That he did enough to save us and forgive us, but not enough to transform us. But he is transforming us. And our lives are proof that he can take the worst of the worst and make them into a person who shines their light for the world to see. So, live a holy life, and in so doing, put the focus on Jesus and His grace at work in you. And last, that our holy lives glorify God by making Him the priority of our lives. Peter says you're a holy nation, but what is that supposed to mean? I mean, how does that work itself out in the day-to-day lives that you and I live? I think there's this background concept, this, this spiritual truth that's true of everybody, that what you treasure most gets your attention and your focus. By nature, you and I are hardwired to want what's best for us. Our treasure is ourselves. We maximize our pleasure or our comfort or our security And we make choices day by day that prioritize those things for us. Maybe yours is different. Maybe you're not into the whole pleasure thing. Maybe you're uh, you just you like pain, and so that's what you go after. I don't know, but for me, I tend to maximize my own comfort, security, and pleasure. I want to live a happy life that's free from trouble, and so I make decisions that lead me down that path. But what would happen if a person's greatest treasure was God? What would happen if they saw their sole purpose in life as being different and distinct, set apart for His glory? 
What if they saw the number one goal of their life as maximizing the fame and honor of Jesus so that wherever they went and whatever they did, everyone knew that they were doing it for him? I think they'd be a person set apart and holy. Making the switch from living for yourself to living from Christ is often painful and difficult. In fact, it's something that you have to kind of stay on top of. You don't slump your way into holiness. It happens because of a choice you make day by day to crucify yourself, to take up your cross and follow Christ, to deny yourself moment by moment. And pretty much every letter in the New Testament was written to people like us struggling with that choice. Am I going to prioritize God in my life? Or am I going to do what maximizes my pleasure, comfort, and security? And so the authors of the New Testament will write these letters to these churches. And they all follow kind of a consistent pattern. In the first half, they'll remind the people of God what God has done for them in sending his son Jesus to live a sinless life and to die in their place and to call them to live differently in the world. And then they'll, they'll turn the page. Paul does this. He often marks the transition with the word, therefore, like in Romans chapter 12, he says, Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, let's offer our bodies as living sacrifices. In view of all that God has done in sending his son Jesus to reconcile us to himself while we were yet enemies, let's offer our bodies as living sacrifices. He makes the same transition in Ephesians 4 when he says, Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called and to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do away with this stuff and set yourselves to living for Christ. Peter does it too, only he, he wastes hardly any time. He says it right here in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you still got your Bible open, you can probably see it on the same page you were looking at before. 1 Peter 1, 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it's written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. I mean, if you were going to take one description of the church and throw it out because of how short the reality falls, it'd have to be the holiness of the church. And yet, it's the one thing that over and over and over the authors of the New Testament, the fathers of the church, preachers and pastors through the centuries consistently place before our eyes. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Without a holy life, the world will never know the God who is, the Holy One. Without the holy lives of God's people, no one will ever understand the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came and lived a sinless life to save us from our sins and to transform us 
So we'd no longer be conformed to the way of life that we were born into, but that we would be transformed to be like him. Without the holy lives of God's people, nobody will ever know how worthy God is of all that we are and all that we have. It's abstract. A lot of God talk. But who's going to take it seriously enough to conform their lives to that truth? Reality is this, because you are in Christ, you are holy, objectively. And yet, God is calling you to live a holy life. To make God your priority. Our world is full of temptations. You have an indwelling sin nature, the Bible calls the flesh. You have an enemy like who's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. And he's going to try to put things in your path that get you off course. But you and I are set apart for holiness, to live differently in the world. And when you and I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, say no to sin and yes to righteousness, yes to God's way, we glorify Him by making Him the priority of our lives. When you say no to greed, and yes to dependence on God, you prioritize Him and live a holy life. When you say no to filthy speech and dirty jokes and lies and self-serving flattery, and yes to speech that's seasoned with salt, giving grace to those who hear, building them up as each moment needs, you show yourself to be of Christ, that He's the priority. When you say no to immoral behavior of every kind, saying that my life is too short and God is too beautiful for me to give myself to these pitiful excuses, you show yourself to be of Christ, to be one of God's people, a holy people, a people set apart, a people as God's chosen, treasured possession from among all the peoples of the world, you alone are loved by God like that. I don't know what the future holds for the church. No. I'm pretty high on the church after today, to be honest with you. Hearing y'all sing like that, I'm, I'm, I'm bearish, you know. But I don't know. Maybe the church as we've known it in the West for the, for the past 500 years is headed for some kind of terrible crash. And pretty soon we'll all be meeting in our homes and meeting in prison cells and some of us are going to die for our faith. I don't know. But as long as there's a church, she will be a holy people set apart for the glory of God by living a life of holiness. And if we want to make a difference in the world, if we want to be part of what God's doing in saving a people from every nation, tribe, and language. If we want to see Luling, Texas transformed by the power of the gospel, it's not going to be because we went about life our way, doing what makes us feel good, what keeps us safe and secure. It's going to be because we wholeheartedly consecrate ourselves to God, 
choosing to live His way, to speak His way, to go where He goes, being His holy people. And so as we close this morning, can I just remind you before you leave of the God you serve? You serve a holy God. There's no one like Him. No one as pure, as beautiful, as glorious as Him. Worship Him in the splendor of holiness. Offer back to Him a life that reflects His goodness to the world. Can I remind you of who you are in Christ? That on your worst days, you are still in Him and are still a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. That nothing you can do can separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ. You are holy, and don't let anybody tell you you're not. Don't let anybody tell you that you've made so many mistakes that it's not even worth it anymore. It's not even worth trying anymore. Maybe at one point you had a future and a hope, but now you've messed that up. No. You are in Christ, and you are holy. And when your progress is slower than you wish, and your mistakes are bigger than you ever thought possible, God looks at you, and He is delighted in you because you are in Christ. That's who you are. Leave here today assured of your holiness in Christ. And can I challenge you to consecrate yourself to Him? Take a long, hard look at the quality of life that you've been living. Ask yourself, if you stood before the Lord today and gave an account for everything you've done the past week and every thought you've thought and every word you've said, would you be ashamed? And in the quiet of the moment, would you in your own heart admit to God what He already knows? That you have been satisfied with sad substitutes for the life He's called you to live. That He promises an abundant life. And He says to take His yoke upon you and learn from Him. You'll find rest for your souls. That you'll know joy like you never thought possible. That you'll experience the love of God in Christ. Consecrate yourself. Maybe you need to say a prayer like this. God, I've made a mess of my life. But today, I want to get back to where I'm supposed to be. I want to live a life that honors you. I want to live a holy life. I want to live up to who you say I am in Jesus. Help me close the chapter. And help me start fresh today for you. Is that what you need to say today? Will you bow your head with me?